This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 97. The Death of Cindy James. On June 8, 1989... The battered body of a 44-year-old woman was discovered in the backyard of an abandoned home on a busy thoroughfare in Richmond, British Columbia. Despite an admittedly bizarre scene, police quickly determined that her death was the result of suicide. But it wouldn't be long before a long and strange history of reported stalking and threatening phone calls would be revealed that left authorities and surviving family members questioning the initial determination. To this day, 44 years later, we are plagued with the question of who, or what, ended the life of Cindy James. Splitting off from the rest of his team, Gordon Starchuk, a municipal paving worker headed toward an abandoned house out of view of his co-workers. The moment that he approached the property, he couldn't help but notice a terrible, fetid stench hanging in the air. As repulsive as the smell was, Gordon didn't think of it as out of place. The long-abandoned home was known as a hotbed for underage teen parties and even runaways. He assumed that what he was smelling was the leftover refuse of a group of 'er ne'er-do-wells rotting in the summer sun. He headed into the overgrown grass that surrounded the house, intent on relieving himself quickly and rejoining the road crew. It was when he turned the corner to the backyard that he noticed her, lying on her side in the yard just a few feet away. Her body was hogtied with rope in a fetal position, hands behind her back, and a black nylon stocking was bound tightly around her neck. Her face had begun turning black from decomposition, a stark contrast to her golden blonde hair. Her right leg lay beneath a bramble of blackberry bushes, and her coat would later be found lying near her body. The police had a good idea of who they were going to find before even arriving at the scene, and their suspicions would soon be confirmed. The body was that of Cindy James, a middle-aged woman who had disappeared from the area two weeks prior. Her car had been found abandoned in a local parking lot. In the car, along with blood on the driver's side door, detectives found rotting groceries, a wrapped gift, and the contents of her purse scattered underneath the vehicle. Despite all of these obvious signs of foul play, police quickly determined that Cindy's death was the result of suicide. 
Posthumous testing revealed that her blood contained high amounts of morphine, diazepam, and fluorazepam. Investigators theorized that she had overdosed. Regardless of their assumptions, the coroner listed the cause of death as an unknown event. This designation triggered controversy in the local community, and has become a point of contention with web sleuths all over the world. So, in an effort to truly understand the circumstances that surrounded this bizarre course of events, we'll go back to the beginning. Back in 1944, Cindy Hack was born and lived the first year of her life in Ontario. Her father, Otto, was stationed as a doctor in the army. Following the resolution of World War II, the family moved to Vancouver, where Otto attended medical school. After quickly failing out, her father took an offer to re-enlist in the military as a trainer, and this position sent the family traveling all over the country. This would be the running theme of Cindy's young life, regularly torn from one school and friend group only to be dropped into a new and unfamiliar environment, and never staying in one place long enough to form truly lasting connections. In fact, her parents often discouraged her from making friends, in an attempt to protect her from the heartbreak that was bound to happen as they moved around the country. Despite her lack of socialization, all who knew her as a young girl characterized her as highly intelligent, with a deep love for books, and aspirations to one day become a nurse. Many children who live this kind of itinerant lifestyle find companionship in their parents. Unfortunately, this was not the case for young Cindy. Otto was the type of strict disciplinarian that has become stereotypical of career military men, treating Cindy more like a live-in maid than a daughter. In April of 1962, his request to work abroad was approved, and he had every intention of moving the entire family to France. Now 18 years old, and more than capable of supporting herself, Cindy refused to go with them. Knowing that she couldn't afford to live in Ottawa alone, she enrolled in the nursing program at Vancouver General Hospital and moved into the dorms there. She loved her life there, and she was quite successful. She maintained a high GPA and even visited her family in France in the summer of 1963, 64, and 65. Just after her final trip to France, however, her parents were shocked to receive a letter from Cindy that detailed the suicide of her fiancé. Her family had heard nothing of this engagement. Even her brother, Doug, who made regular trips to visit her in Canada, had never heard anything about this mystery man. But later in 1965, Cindy met a man at work named Roy Makepeace. He was a 39-year-old married man who had taken an interest in the much younger student. Soon after he began tutoring her, they began a sexual relationship. In 1966, Roy divorced his wife, and in December of the same year, he and Cindy were married. Once they were married, Cindy revealed their relationship to her parents, and when they learned the lurid details, they were openly appalled. Roy would later discuss an occasion where Cindy read an angry letter from her mother that claimed he was only taking advantage of her. However, later, Cindy admitted that she had written the letter. Roy noted the behavior as bizarre, but ended up writing it off as simple melodrama. 
Over the years, Cindy isolated herself more and more. She would insist on being left alone in the bedroom for sometimes days at a time, while simultaneously telling friends that Roy abused her and would often lock her in the bedroom. He would later admit to two occasions where he slapped her during arguments, but steadfastly denied the kind of abuse that she accused him of. In 1982, after 16 years of marriage, the pair divorced, and Cindy moved into a small house near the hospital in Vancouver. This was the first time that she had ever lived alone. And it was then that the horror that would define the final years of her life began. Just a few months after moving into her apartment, on October 7, 1982, Cindy began receiving tormenting phone calls. A raspy voice on the other end made obscene sexual threats. What truly terrified Cindy was that the caller knew her name, saying it over and over again to taunt her. She went on receiving the calls for several days. On one occasion, she hung up the phone and felt as though she were being watched. She walked across the living room and closed the curtains, only for the phone to ring again. When she picked it up, the stranger said, Don't think pulling the drapes means I don't know you're in there. At this point, Cindy knew that she had to get the police involved. They visited to speak with her on October 12th and found nothing out of the ordinary in or around her home. They instructed her to make note of anything out of the ordinary and to switch her phone number to unlisted. Unfortunately, these measures did not stop the phone calls. If anything, the harassment escalated. On the 15th of October, after a dinner out with her friend Agnes, they returned to Cindy's home to find the front door hanging open and the window in her bedroom smashed. Terrifyingly, the pillows on her bed were found slashed to pieces, and a copy of her front door key that she didn't know existed was found lying on the nightstand. In the following week, she started finding notes made from magazine clippings, detailing violent and sexually aggressive threats against her. While constantly updating the police, Cindy met Detective Pat McBride. He soon made it his duty to frequently check in with Cindy, and even ended up moving into her spare bedroom later that month in an attempt to more closely observe the harassment. Despite the added security police found that her phone wire had been cut in early November. McBride would soon find a pair of wire clippers on top of his toolbox that did not belong to him. Later that month, police found her ex-husband Roy parked behind her house. He claimed to be there in an effort to protect her, but he admitted that Cindy did not know he was planning to be there. He would later ask Cindy to move back in with him, but she understandably refused. Instead, she planned to move away. Just days before she was due to leave town, Agnes found Cindy collapsed at the bottom of her basement stairs. It quickly became apparent that she was not injured from a simple slip and fall. She was bleeding badly, having been cut 14 times. When the police asked for a description, Cindy claimed that she never saw her attacker's face. Police notes imply that they felt she was withholding information. Her brother Doug would later confirm this suspicion 
when he discussed a conversation where Cindy told him that the attacker had insisted that she look away from him, under threat of him going after her family. Over the following year, police would intermittently set up surveillance operations on Cindy's home. They would watch day and night for sometimes weeks at a time. The surveillance efforts were fruitless. They observed nothing out of the ordinary. But curiously, immediately upon their exit, the calls and notes would resume. In 1983, Cindy moved to a smaller house in another part of Vancouver. After a short vacation, it seemed as though she had successfully evaded her stalker. Unfortunately, this respite would be short-lived. After her first shift back at work, she found another note made up of magazine clippings under the windshield wiper that simply read, Welcome back. In October of that year, she found a cat on her front porch. It had been strangled, and it laid next to a note that read, You are next. Now in fear for her life, her brother introduced her to Ozzy Caban. He was a very well-known security contractor that had protected celebrities, politicians, and even royalty. Unfortunately, even his efforts would be in vain. As in late November, he was called to her house, and after his knocking went unanswered, he kicked the front door open. Inside, he found her unconscious on the floor with a black stocking tied tightly around her neck, and a paring knife stabbed through her hand. The knife penned a note which read, Now you must die. Following this event, Cindy reached her tipping point. After threatening suicide, she was committed to Lionsgate Hospital, and after only five days, the staff concluded that she was no longer a suicide risk. They released her into the care of her family and friends. When the harassment continued, she relocated once again, this time to Richmond, in an attempt to escape the nightmare that her life had become. Tragically, this move only seemed to exacerbate the situation. On December 5, 1985, Cindy was found dazed in a ditch nearly seven miles from her home. When she was found, she was in the early stages of hypothermia. She was found wearing only underwear and a t-shirt with bizarrely a large men's work boot on one foot. She had a dishwashing glove on her left hand and had yet another black stocking tied tightly around her throat. She was obviously battered, having suffered a series of small cuts, a black eye, abrasions on her arms and legs, and a needle mark in her inner elbow. When interviewed, she had no memory of how she had arrived there or what had transpired. After being briefed by the Vancouver police, the Richmond police concluded that Cindy was fabricating the assaults. They quickly grew weary of the constant calls only to find no evidence of a stalker. Despite the position of the police, her friends Tom and Agnes continued supporting her and began spending the night in an attempt to prevent any incidents. However, late one April night, Cindy woke Tom after hearing a strange noise. They ran downstairs to find that a fire had been started in the house. When they attempted to call the fire department, they found that the telephone line and a panic button that Ozzy had installed had been disconnected. 
Neighbors that witnessed the event informed the police that Cindy had been perfectly calm until their arrival. As the police lights came into view, she began screaming and crying suddenly. Investigators quickly determined that Cindy had started the fire herself. However, her friends insisted that this could not be the case, as they could not imagine her putting their lives in danger. Early in May of 1986, Cindy was hospitalized for extreme depression. She was transferred to a larger facility in nearby Vancouver, where her condition could be more closely examined, and she received her first legitimate psychoanalysis. She was diagnosed with paranoia, hysteria, schizophrenia, psychopathy, and hypochondriasis. She was released after 10 weeks, and the torment restarted almost immediately. On October 26th, her panic button was pressed. She was found by the police hogtied, naked from the waist down, and choked with a stocking halfway inside her car, with no memory of how she got there. A not-expert had claimed that she could not have restrained herself in the manner that she was discovered, but the police dismissed this. Her alarm went off several times over the following months, but very little consideration was afforded her by the Richmond Police Department. The supposed harassment went on this way for the next three and a half years, before the situation finally reached its dismal and terrifying conclusion. On the evening of May 25, 1989, Agnes visited Cindy's house for their weekly game of bridge. She knocked, but heard nothing from inside, and immediately panicked. Begrudgingly, the Richmond police responded, found no one inside the home, and quickly organized a search party. Later that evening, they found Cindy's car in the parking lot of a grocery store nearby. A forensics team went over the car with a fine-tooth comb. They discovered spoiled groceries, a gift for Agnes's child, and a receipt from depositing her paycheck three nights before, at 7.58 p.m. on March 22nd. They detected traces of blood on the driver's side door and found the contents of her purse scattered on the ground below the car. All signs pointed to a kidnapping having taken place. Her ex-husband Roy was the obvious choice for a primary suspect, but his airtight alibi left the police with little to go on. Cindy's body was discovered two weeks later, and the man who found her stated that no effort had been made to conceal it. This time, the expert claimed that the knots could have easily been made by Cindy, demonstrating the technique to the police. Toxicology reports showed a lethal cocktail of narcotics in her system, which according to investigators was, quote, unlikely to have been ingested involuntarily. The coroner's report listed the cause of death as an unknown event. Despite this determination, police were adamant that the death was in fact a suicide. To this day, no one has been charged in connection with the death of Cindy James. Not a single shred of evidence was ever found that suggested the involvement of another party. No fingerprints, no hair, no DNA. So is this simply the tragic tale of a woman so deeply devoid of human connection that a seven-year-long charade of horrendous self-harm and melodrama 
Was as close as she could get to an honest request for help? Was this just another calamitous result of ignored and untreated severe mental illness? Or was something more nefarious going on here? Was Cindy James trapped in a hellish ordeal that no one else could understand or believe? If so, who was the source of her torment? The jilted ex-husband? An obsessed patient? A perfect stranger who just happened upon someone who fit his twisted fantasy? Unfortunately, despite continued controversy and criticism surrounding the response of police, the Cindy James case has been officially shelved for over four decades. Maybe we'll never know for sure what occurred that summer day in Richmond. Or maybe, just maybe, someone out there has information that could finally shed light on these terrible and enigmatic events. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts, I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. I almost forgot the name of our show for a minute. Oh, man, don't do that. I know. (laughs) What is wrong with you, Ryan? It is a lot to remember. We've only been doing this for a year and a half. I know. We're only (laughs) at 97 of our normal show, episode 97. That's so crazy. So many episodes, man. I'm, I like... I, I like I think about this sometimes like Jesus, when did we get here? Yeah. And we're coming up on a hundred. Yeah. That's a massive milestone. It, it is. It's also terrifying because I'm still stuck on what we're doing for episode one hundred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be like monumental. You would think, right? Either that or we just pass it off as another day, you know? Yeah. I mean I don't know honestly, just me being me, that's my first instinct. To just ignore the anniversary and just plow through. But I feel like but, it should be important. Yeah. Like, yeah. we got to do a giveaway. We got to do something. Maybe give away, yeah. like, a, a jacket now that it's summer. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Not hitting the thrift bins or at all. <laughs> uh, give away a crew neck sweater just... now that it's 90 degrees exactly. outside. I've got a bunch yeah. just burning a hole in the ground over here. <laughs> Uh, something you'd think something, I, I think yeah, at least something. I, don't, I just don't know what it'll be. Yet. Whether it's like, I don't know, man. It's a, it, we've got to do something, something big, something big. We probably, we probably should have started planning in earnest a couple months ago. We've talked about it in passing, oh, yeah. not in exactly. earnest, but in passing, in passing. Yeah, we're like, man, hundreds coming up soon. Heck yeah, you're sure right. Is. <laughs> oh boy. And oh conversation. This is also this episode is a big milestone for us because this is our first legit true crime case. Yeah. Yeah. And we've dabbled, you know, we've dabbled a little bit, you know, and that kind of sure. mysterious deaths and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I mean this is this is big. Um yeah. We're still gonna talk about aliens or something <laughs> paranormal, I'm sure of it though. We have to. Yeah. We have you to tie so. it in, man. We do for sure. We'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so, what did you think? What did you I, think of the story? Honestly, I I really dug it. Like it it was one that I hadn't heard of before. So, like that was also cool. You know, so I I went into it not knowing anything and just like 
there's so much to this. I'm like, I keep pointing fingers at this person or that person. Yeah. And all signs point. Uh, I don't want to give it away yet because I want to. I know want to actually talk about it and dive into it. Okay. But all signs point to one person. You think so? Yes. Okay. Cool. I like that. Um, but I, I don't know. At the same time, it could be aliens. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God damn it. It took you exactly <laughs> three minutes. It could have been a it could have been a family of Bigfoots. Oh Christ. Yeah. Uh, Maybe like a whole flock of Thunderbirds. I don't know. <laughs> That's probably it. A flock of thunderbirds. <laughs> yep. Oh, Christ. But yeah, no, it was actually... I don't actually, know why the police didn't think of that. I, I was actually questioning that the whole time. I was like, why? Why, <laughs> why aren't you looking into this? But nobody did. I was, I was disappointed. Nobody so I think did. we might have the answers and they didn't. Stay that tuned next case. week for the <laughs> results of the debrief come back next week where we solve the the uh, mystery of Jean Benet Ramsey and <laughs> uh, Jimmy Hoffa and all the Amelia Earhart. It's all Thunderbirds. Oh, I, I could have told you Spoiler. after Amelia Earhart years ago. Thunderbirds. Well, <laughs> maybe not Thunderbirds in that particular case, but with the help, maybe, maybe the assistance. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah. Maybe a team of assisting Thunderbirds. <laughs> All set up to carry on this elaborate disappearance mm. that has never been solved till today. Yeah. Along with exactly. the help of your friendly white, whites or grays. <laughs> Don't know where else <laughs> going on. Aliens. Let's leave out the whites. <laughs> your friendly grays. <laughs> Okay. Let's talk about Cindy James. Yeah, let's talk yeah. about her. Yeah. All uh, right. Before I go too deep here, wow. So one of the most important pieces in this, I think, is understanding just how fucked up her childhood was. Yeah, I mean, like, like her dad, what, started in the military, then started trying to go for another job, and then eventually went back to the military. They moved around a lot. You know, she yep, never really a, had a solid life. Yeah, he was a trainer in the military, so he was moving from base to base right. to train people. And, um, like, one of the things I found most interesting was the fact that they moved so much that her parents actually it discouraged her from making friends. Which, that's because really sad, like, if you yeah. look at it. But it also, at the same time, it's like setting her up uh, trying to not set her up for sit and failure i guess you know like right is this sucks like i've been in those cases when i was younger like moving i mean oh, yeah. you know we moved from indiana to georgia back to indiana like you make friends and like those are friends that you think you're gonna keep for a lifetime but no yeah that's one of you the know? toughest things as a parent is explaining to trying to like let your kids have those friends and those like deep connections but Every once in a while, you want to just be like, you got to understand, in 20 years, you're not even going to remember this kid's name. Oh, yeah. Like, I it's mean, not a big deal. Exactly. I can't but tell then you. Again, 
our one of our parents could have said that to us about each other when we were in I, fifth grade. You, you know what you're I mean? right. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it, you know, like if it weren't, I, I would like to think if it weren't for Brian coming over, he like randomly showed up in my house one day because he lived next door. He's like, hey, we go to school together. <laughs> like, all right, let's yeah. come and hang out. And then yeah. you and I start hanging out and then we all just, just hang out. Like, you know, like it's yeah. just we fell, formed a friendship that uh lasted Stuck for, for 25 years shit almost almost 30 years at this point because we were what yeah. eight years old at the time yeah i think so so yeah, yeah we're just a couple years off of 30 years which is crazy damn crazy yeah. so but yeah, yeah no, you're right you're right for sure it it is weird though i don't think i would ever say that to my kids like don't make friends no like i mean you should make friends everywhere you go Agree. You know what I mean? You're just discouraging that. I mean, because, like, think about what, like, yeah, I'm just going to throw out loneliness, you know? Like, think about, like, being lonely does to a person. You know, it discourages you from being creative. It discourages you from being social. I mean, everybody needs some form of social contact. Whether it is, you know, I mean, whether it's in person or online, whatever. Like, somebody needs somebody even just to, like, Say hi to you. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I can't quite I can't quite I guess put together what I'm trying to say. But like, you need some form of of that. Not not even if it's a. It doesn't even have to be a bond. Like just some form of interaction. Otherwise, like you can literally, it does a lot to your emotional health. Yeah, I mean, without it, you never feel secure. Right. I mean, that's what people what people forget about loneliness is it's not so much about like not having anyone. It's about never feeling like anyone has you. That's true. You know what I mean? There's a lot of security that comes with socialization. Yeah. That like understanding that the people around you care about you and, and you know, are pulling for you. And it's also the development. Yeah. Like that development that you get from social interactions. I mean, you can't get anywhere else. Yeah. And if you add to that the if you take seriously the allegations made against her father, which are I mean, everyone said that he was super strict as a parent, right? I mean, he I'm was sure like being a the, military father, yeah, right. probably was. He was the stereotypical career military man, yeah. but like there it went beyond that, according to a lot of people. Like Cindy was treated more like a housemaid than a daughter. You know what I mean? Like her entire childhood. And I couldn't imagine some people, treating a child like that, though. Like, yeah, I, I know. I know. Same. Uh, so, I mean, and some people later, even like her ex-husband, some of her friends talked about and even we'll get into um, what her therapist had to say at, at the inquest. But um, a lot of people suggested that there was sexual abuse that there was physical abuse like the home life was not any better than her social life yeah you know Mm. so a lot because a lot of kids who live that like itinerant lifestyle that like where parents are moving you around constantly they the parents go out of their way to have like a really nurturing home environment you know what i mean like Mm. you get so you get that connection with your parents but she all like all signs point to the fact that she didn't get it anywhere. I mean, I I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even thinking of uh, just the possibility of like some form of like 
sexual misconduct at home. I don't sure. know what a best no way to abuse. put it. I mean, yeah, sexual abuse. Yeah. Like that, that's awful. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, that will traumatize a person. It doesn't matter who, who it is, oh, yeah. like whatever can traumatize somebody for their entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And I so, mean, you, I mean, you hear people mm. talk about all the time how, um, people who sexually abuse children it's the it's considered as bad as murder because you're you're stealing the life that that child could have had oh, without a doubt i you're agree completely with that. altering their life for the worse yeah you know mm-hmm. um so all this to say it, that this kind of childhood could and most likely did have extreme lasting impact on cindy's um mental health oh i I think this, yeah, that's that's like the that what tip of the iceberg, yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, and in her whole case for sure. Yeah, absolutely, and I think her mental health has a ton to do with this case. Whether you're someone who falls on one side or the other, on what actually happened, I think like I think of this case as like a study in the effect of mental illness on like the investigative process. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. like. Because if someone did this, if someone did these things to her, then her mental health state had a lot to do with why she was sort of written off by the police. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it, it was all, it was all like that, like the boy who cried wolf story, right? Like yeah. every time she would contact them or reach out, like, you know, like after, after the, there was the one, the one officer that like went and stayed with her for a short period of time just to, you know, uh, yeah. monitor everything. But like after that, like she was dismissed left and right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a big chunk of the story that I had to just kind of glaze over where like, cause I couldn't do, I couldn't cover every incident that happened right, over the of course. course of seven years. Right. But there's like a big chunk, the second half of that seven years, where these things just kept happening and the police who responded wouldn't dust for fingerprints, they wouldn't follow up, they wouldn't talk to any witnesses, nothing. They would just go like, oh, this crazy bitch again. Yeah. And move along. Yeah. I mean, it's... hmm. So either she didn't get the help she needed or, I mean, either way. Really, right? That for sure. She didn't get the help she needed. If it was someone else doing it to her, then she didn't get the help she needed. If she was doing all this to herself, she didn't get. You know what I mean? Right. She at least. I mean, it, yeah. I know. I know. There was the point in time where she went. Uh, she went into like what, like a psych ward for a short period of time or whatever else. Like, like came 10 out. Ten weeks, and, dude. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, still, that's not. I. I don't think that's at all what she needed in this case. I mean, granted, I I know what I what I think about the overall case, right? You sure. know, I'm not going to give anything away, obviously, until we discuss more of it. Yeah. But like, even that, regardless, I feel like she wasn't the attention wasn't paid enough to her and her particular like everything that that involves it, like in, that is involved in this case, the attention and like everything just wasn't actually there to it. Like to even, even I don't know, comfort is a normal person, you know, like take into consideration all the shit that she's going through all the times that she's found like hogtied. And with this, uh, also this, uh, 
stocking around her neck, yeah, which I think we'll, we'll get to. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like little things like that. And then it's just more so, oh, she probably could have tied these knots herself. Yeah. You know, like, it just, it, every, everything just writ, like wrote everything about it off and never took anything seriously. And I think that's like, Understood. Honestly, I think that's the society that we live in. Unfortunately, yeah, I think you it's know? gotten better. I think it it's may gotten, have gotten better. better the but... 80s. Definitely, victim care has gotten has come a long way since since the eighties. But it's still it's especially for women to be written off by law enforcement is so common. Right. It, it, yeah, it's a tragedy. It just it really that is. should not be a thing yeah. at this point. Agreed, and I think that's I mean, maybe what I'm trying to get to. I, you know, yeah. in somewhere, somewhere, fashion, whatever. Yeah, I think the stereotype of the like hysterical woman is still hanging on. Unfortunately, it's definitely still there, and that's pretty much how she was pigeonholed. Right, and I mean, like, and there was that one, there was that one uh, at one point where her and Agnes comes back to the house and. Like the windows broken in and the doors yes. open, and her pillows are like torn to shreds or whatever. And like you know, they say that like she's calm until the police arrive, and then she starts, you know, starts yeah. like screaming and crying and whatever else. Like I mean, look at it like this: you're in this position that you're probably in shock. First of all, yeah, the fact that she also found a spare key, a set of keys that she never knew that she had. So, yeah. I mean, all this together until she finally realizes, like, help is here. She can yeah. finally, like, just let herself let go. It out. Exactly. But yeah. yet they see it as like, oh, oh, that probably means that she was making it up. Right. Putting on a show for the police. Exactly. It just, yeah. It's unfortunate. It really is. And I know I'm skipping way ahead, but it's okay. It's, I mean, and that's the same thing as, you know, and you hear it all the time now, but like how people grieve differently, right? Like, People, one person could be at a funeral sobbing the whole time and the other person sitting there stone-faced and it doesn't mean one person is sadder than the no. other. You know what I mean? It's just how like, they process things, yeah. how they deal with it. You have no idea what's going on inside other people's oh, minds. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many factors. You can't play. pass somebody on the street and be like, ah, I bet they're doing, you're going through this. I bet they deal with that daily. No, you never know what somebody is going through, what they're dealing with how they're able to process things, their emotional health, like their emotional well-being. There's, yeah, just, I love that we can be like this, this almost open format where we can talk about mental health and stuff. And again, I know we talk about it a little bit here and there, but like, I, I love that because this is, in this case, I think this is really what it all boils down to. I agree. I agree completely. I, and I think you and I have always shared the, you know, the common goal of, of getting, of talking about mental health on a public platform more. Yeah. I think it should be done more. It should be. Um, it should be a very common practice at this point. Yeah. And I know and we're not, that's what I strive to at least allow us to be yeah. able to do, you know? Agreed. And I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about go stepping into more true crime stories is that it, a lot of them have to do with, with mental health. issues right and it's really an opportunity to talk about what these people are really going through you know yeah and that's a lot that a lot of people especially a lot of true crime podcasts and and yeah in my experience don't 
they they basically graze over that. Like, yeah, it's not a focal point, which I, it should be. It definitely, yeah, I agree. Be. I agree. I mean, as two men who you know struggle with mental health issues ourselves, it's it's something that's like primary to us. Right, so for sure, when we talk about these stories, that's you know it's what stands out. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's almost that like empath in me and i and yes. i know you understand that too right like yep. being able to like empathize with the situation regardless whether we've been there or not you yeah. still have that ability to be able to like put yourself in that and kind of look from that perspective and so yeah, yeah it just it makes these cases so much hard hitting man like as we get into like some of the crazy ones this is gonna be mm-hmm. tough <laughs> yeah he just throw that out there for sure agreed no when we decided to start mixing in some true crime too i i will admit because we both wanted it i but i kind of spearheaded it but while spearheading it i was nervous like i am nervous about covering some of these yeah crazier true crime stories you know what i mean like even going back to when we covered some of the like um possession cases Mm -hmm. and stuff that that was more you know we ended up talking about mental health we talked about like these legitimate human tragedies that took place right like that stuff stays with me it really stays oh i i know what you mean i know what you mean for sure it's uh it's a very lasting effect that that it has on you being able to like just i mean we dive so deep into these these cases and these stories whether you know whether it's true crime whether it's like you said possessions abductions i mean anything else that has really an effect over someone's actual mental well-being and everything like yeah it does it does have a lasting effect because i mean we're we're investing so much into it yeah yeah so okay so yeah back to the timeline so eventually it's around her 18th birthday. Her parents, her parents move overseas to France and she decides to, instead of going with them, she enrolls in this nursing school in Vancouver. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's where she ends up meeting her. Well, before we get to Roy, her husband, there is a weird thing. So a a few years after her, a few years after her parents move overseas, she just out of the blue sends them a letter saying that her fiance had committed suicide. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she had she had been dating the guy, yeah, and he had ended up killing himself and right. But her family knew nothing about this guy. Mm. They didn't know she had a fiance. Even her brother who traveled back and back to Canada to visit with her on a fairly regular basis, she had never mentioned this guy to him to any of them which is a little weird i mean you would think that especially him kind of coming back and forth he probably would have met this guy in passing maybe once at least right yeah you would think so right i mean and all this to say that she did sort of have a history of according to her family she had a history of making stuff up like making up tragedies yeah to be the center of i'm yeah i mean that's true and as we yeah. get a little bit further into this case, we'll talk about one in particular um, mm-hmm. that I thought was pretty pretty major after yeah. finding out about. But yeah. So and then very quickly after they get this letter, she starts she meets Roy Makepeace, which is 
the guy she ends up marrying. Right. And they right. were together for what, 16 years or something like yeah. that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But they when they first met and started sleeping together, he was already married. Right. And then he so ended up was, divorcing yeah. and right. And then she they was got the married. Mistress. Yeah. yeah. And he ends up m- divorcing his wife and marrying her with a couple months. Yeah. That was a that was a pretty fast like turn of events at that point. Yeah. It was a quick turnover. Um and when her parents find out like the nature of how they met and what went down, they were like vehemently against it. I mean, yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. So he's also it's worth noting that he's like twenty years older than her, basically. Because when they meet, he's thirty nine, hmm. she's a nursing student. Like she's nineteen I mean, or yeah, twenty. So I was gonna say she's not much older than when her parents moved away. Yeah, I think it would have been three years. So she would have been twenty-one, and he was thirty-nine. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, good for you, bud. <laughs> <laughs> but her parents, obviously, they hear about the story, how they met, what was going. On. They hear, you know, that he's thirty-nine, and they're they're instantly like. They assume he's just like taking advantage of her. I mean, any right? any normal parent is going to immediately assume, yeah. oh, okay, well, yeah, that's you know, obviously they don't know the person. Yeah, they've never met him. They live very far away. You know, yeah, yeah. He's also a psychologist at the hospital where she's a nursing student. So, like, there's a lot to that too. The fact that's that true, he's yeah. a psychologist, like, I mean, very. That could- be manipulative yeah. it could be using his yep. his role as a as almost um you know like i'm trying to think of the proper word but like bringing her down you know kind of due to his role and everything uh yeah. making himself seem inferior right yeah or superior I mean, at that point rather yeah 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 the power dynamics are way off right for sure in a relationship yeah. right like he's an established psychologist in this system that she's just getting into mm-hmm. he's so much older than her he you know what i mean so like he definitely had the power yeah in the relationship that i mean yeah that would that would make sense or at least you can assume that right that he had that he had the the power in the marriage and shit gets weird in the marriage fairly quickly right like right after they get married she supposedly receives this letter and reads it to him where mother is accusing him of taking advantage of her and talking about how the relationship is terrible and she should get out and all that and then very quickly she ends up admitting that she actually wrote the letter right that was that was one of the bigger things for me like yeah, yeah there was uh, there was that letter well letter uh, you know, claiming to be, was it from the mother or the father? The mother. Okay. I thought it was the mother. Yeah. And it's like this big, big whole thing. And then she eventually admits to writing it. Yeah. Like, I think like at the first sign of her mental well being, I think that's one of the, one of the big things to kind of let us, let us, you know, show some insight to where she is. Yeah. I think um, it, it's just this like, this drive to create drama around herself. Right. Which, I mean, you as we I mean? look at, the, at her past, like her, you know, uh, basically from, yeah. you know, showing that, like her basically create almost, almost creating these situations to make her, I, I, I don't know, situation seem worse and everything. And that's where this is followed by 
her husband becoming abusive, right? Right. According to her. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yep. And and that's where he's, you know, he he admitted to like what, a couple of times where he might have like slapped you know, her. Later hand on her right. But yep. like she was all over all over with it. Yeah. Yeah, she um she told several friends that she was being abused, that he would lock her in the bedroom, that he wouldn't right. let her go yeah. out. Um but in his version of the story, she would just all of a sudden fly off the handle and she would lock herself in the bedroom and say, don't come near me and sometimes stay in the bedroom for days at a time. Yeah. Now, and, and I'm trying, trying not to jump too far ahead. I know that eventually when she was, um, you know, when she was, uh, did go into this, the psych ward for the, what was it you said like 10 weeks or whatever she was there yeah it was 10 weeks yeah it was after she um she started talking about suicide right so what all was she actually like what all did they determine what it did she i guess what all did they determine was i don't want to say wrong with her but you yeah. know that she was dealing with so they diagnosed they ended up diagnosing her with let me get the list I was here. Say, I know there were several different ones, right? Yeah. It was. They diagnosed her with paranoia, hysteric personality disorder, schizophrenia, psychopathy, and hypochondriasis. And psychopathy is basically just going to be what, psychosis, basically? Yeah. And then yep. what was the last one? Yeah, you're going to make me say it again. It's hypochondriasis, which is... I was going to say, I don't, I don't know that one. So It's a hypochondriac. Okay, that, that makes sense. All right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, she's she's already dealing with paranoia. First of all, paranoia will make you do and respond and react to things in some pretty crazy ways that you would never, yeah. you would never really. see yourself actually acting as. Really unpredictable ways. Oh, yeah. For sure. I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, it's it's very real. Now, alongside this, she also is diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah, she's you know diagnosed with all like psychosis and has a hypochondriac. Like, yeah, I mean, it's a lot. That's where you kind of start to question, you know. And and I'm I'm obviously, you know, I mean, any type of any type of uh, domestic abuse and things like that. I mean. Obviously, that is a terrible thing. Yeah, I would never condone that. I would never speak. Uh, oh, you know, I would never speak like positively about anything like that. I'm not saying or that make at all. Excuses for exactly. It. Yeah, but that makes me question in this case the fact because the fact that he also said yes, like he you know had had laid a hand on her, maybe had slapped her a couple times, whatever. Like we want to call it. Yeah, but her like thinking like he is out to get her tremendously and locking herself away for these periods of time. I think a lot of her, of her mental health had to do with it. Yeah. Agreed. I think it's, you know, I think she maybe, and again, I'm trying not to under uh, try to underplay anything that she, you went through through. again, you know, that's not what we're about, but like, I think I might've been overhyped in this case. Yeah. I, that's the feeling I got for sure. And, 
I mean, you also have to look at those diagnoses in, through the lens of mental health treatment in 1986, right? Which is very yeah, different. True. It's come a long way since then. Yeah. So you look at things like schizophrenia, which for the longest time was sort of a catch-all. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was kind of an all-in-one. Yeah, schizophrenia was used as as a catch-all for what we now know are dozens of separate, mm. completely separate disorders, right? But um, this could be also, she could have had some type of multiple personality disorder. Oh, yeah. Yep. That when she was normal, everything was was fine. And then when she was under this other personality, caused her to you know develop this, like, this paranoia, this like this be you know like this feeling of being afraid of the world and everyone around yep. you, which could and uh, that is that is one of the big theories in this case yeah. is is DID dissociative identity disorder, right? Is if yes. she had this, she literally could have been doing these things to herself without knowing it. Like she she could have been her own stalker. Yes. I, I don't want to talk like Tyler Durden fight club. Type I mean, yeah, shit here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I honestly, that's, that's where I lie with this whole thing. Really? Yeah. I, I know I'm skipping yeah. ahead, but like that to me, no, okay. Makes the absolute most sense after, I mean, just, just consider everything that this girl has been through everything that, you know, like, I mean, again, mental well being and mental health, especially at this point, like you said, not, you know, like using using schizophrenia as a catch-all, but it can yep. be lots of different other things, other factors, other things at play. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of that really, really comes into play here. I think that, yep. you know, explains a lot of what she went through. There's, I mean, and there are a couple different options there, right? Because that list of diagnoses includes a couple catch-alls. Like hypochondriasis was a catch-all for what we now know as Munchausen's disorder, where someone with Munchausen, someone has to, their impulse is to create situations where they're the center of attention and they go to extremes to do it, sometimes yeah. hurting themselves, causing themselves physical or mental distress like people but, what people hear about a lot in the news and in tv and movies is munchausen's by proxy which is a, a version of the disorder where people use their children usually so they'll you know women have been found poisoning their children so that they can go through these situations where they're like i don't we don't know what's wrong with him. Something's going on with the child. Like, and they yeah. go through these huge medical ordeals and then they're found to have been causing them themselves. But in those, they become self-aware of it, right? Yes. Yes. They are aware of what's right. what they're doing. Yeah. Which I feel is different in this case. Yeah. I mean, it, it would require, it would require a little more, um, a lot more dishonesty. Right. From her. Oh yeah. Right? Like, yeah. The, yeah, it's. But I mean, it's to say that that's not the case as well. I mean, sure. That's ah oh, man, that's where it's tough. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, there are some events in here that it's it's sort of mind-boggling to think that someone could do them, do it to themselves. 
You know what I mean? And I mean, yeah, self-harm is a big part of, of mental health. And I, I know it's definitely within human capability to cause that kind of damage to yourself. But there's um, also other reasons for self-harm, you know, like yeah. self-harm and making you, allowing you to, or helping you to cope with something. Sure. Um, or like some people, they just need to feel some type of anything. Right. Exactly. Like, yeah. especially when you're emotionally drained and you have no feeling left in you whatsoever. Yeah. Sometimes the only way around that is doing something that is extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, I mean, I mean, to jump a little bit ahead, there is a moment where she's found lying on the floor, having been supposedly attacked, where she's unconscious and she has a paring knife stabbed through her hand with a note attached to her hand. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, like, that's one of the situations that I think of when I think, like, I can't imagine the headspace you have to be in to be able to do that to yourself. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's sort of mind boggling. I like, it's not hard for me to wrap my head around someone, you know, shooting up morphine. Right. right. Or, you know, hog tying themselves or, Or you know, using like cutting. Right. Yeah. Things like that. Exactly. But, like, that moment where she's about to stab a knife through her entire hand. Oof. Like, I, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around what that would feel like. Right. Mentally. You know what I mean? Yeah, that would, that'd be so, uh, that'd be, that'd be tough. I mean, yeah. I think about it now, I'm like, man, that, just, that would hurt. Why would I do that? Yeah. I'm just like, huh. It's, it had to be a means to an end so extreme. You yeah. know what I mean? Like she had to see that as something that she had to do if she was doing it herself. Yeah. Like you would, you would have to be in a space where it was, this is the only thing I can do. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. It's, it's just so hard to put yourself in that kind of headspace. Yeah. Which I mean, I will give you, you know, that it is definitely better than the alternative, which it could be up to and including suicide. Sure. You know, like if she's trying to like, you know, I mean, she's basically like screaming out for, for assistance in some way that, you know, the only way she knows how to do so, at yeah. least it wasn't that bad. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty damn bad. It's pretty bad, but yeah. you know, but it's I, not I what you're right. saying. Yeah. Yeah. So to pull hmm. back again, um eventually in 82 after I think it's 82 it's um yeah in 82 they're so they're married for 16 years she and Roy right in 1982 they finally get divorced obviously regardless of what's you know the he said she said of what went on in their marriage it it was not a good situation yeah that we can, that we know for sure. Of course. Right? I mean, I'm surprised um, they were together for 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's kind of baffling. People, I mean, people get locked into bad situations and time flies. Right. Yeah, you know, that's true. it's, yeah. Anyone who's ever been in like a rough relationship, it's, it's, it's so common to look back and go like, how did I go through that for that long? 
how did I wait so long to get out of there? You Some know? people, it's all they know, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially someone so young to get into that marriage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she went straight from her parents' house, basically. She lived in the dorms for less than a year before she moved in with him. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, pretty nuts. Yeah. So she, they get divorced and she moves into a little house by the hospital. She like seems to be doing pretty good. Right. Like she's just like a a classic eighties working girl. Right. Just like, and, um, and then the craziness starts where she starts getting phone calls. That's what I was going to say. That's where we start to get. Yeah. Yeah. And, if you want to be supremely creeped out, there are two of these phone calls recorded. Okay. Really? And okay. Cindy's sister has a website to this day that's, I forget what it's called. It's like, what happened to my sister? I think is what the website's called. Yeah. But um, she has, because two of these voicemails, two, um, Two messages were left on her ex-husband's answering machine, actually. Oh, okay. Um, and it was quite a bit later. It wasn't these early, this early time, but like that's the only that's the only actual audio that was ever recorded, despite all the surveillance and phone tapping that went on in Cindy's homes. Like the only one that was ever recorded were these messages left on Roy's answering machine. Now, have these been like analyzed? They, I mean, during the inquest, they talked about them and experts said that it was a woman. Like, Both voices. There's, there's a weird, it, so there's only one voice because it's a message that's left on oh, okay. his answering okay, machine. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It, it's only the caller, but they, the expert, and I don't know what I don't know what makes you made you an expert in the eighties. You know what I mean? Voice analysis. I'm not sure. sure they've listened to thousands um, upon thousands of yeah, you know, audio and yeah, yeah, right. I'll give you that. Um, but they they ruled that, or they their opinion was that this was like a woman attempting to mask her voice. They are. It's well masked. I will say it. It does to me, and I don't know if I'm just influenced by the opinion of the experts that I read, but it does sound like a woman to me. But it's very creepy. It's very scratchy and like mm. raspy and breathy, and it it's so creepy. So this is basically very early catfish, <laughs> maybe. And I've yeah. seen episodes of Catfish where people <laughs> yeah. describe their voices, men as women, women as men, like, yeah. yeah. Definitely. But, um, okay, huh. so the calls the calls she starts getting, um, she describes as a raspy voice um, that made obscene sexual threats on the phone. And this goes on for a few days. It starts October 7th. Um, and a few, like three, after three days of this, and I mean, like, several calls a day. It was sometimes calling in the middle of the night. So she gets a call, and it's just like the others, and she hangs up, and she gets a, a creepy feeling like someone's watching her. So she walks over and closes the curtain. Right. And then the phone rings again. She picks it up, 
Um, and the the person on the other end says, don't think pulling the drapes means I don't know you're in there. Like, they're actually watching, right? Yeah. Which is, it's definitely creepy. That's like a horror movie I mean, scene, yeah, that's terrifying. Right? right. But you also have to keep in mind, this actually just occurred to me, this is in 1982. Yeah. The guy is not in the bushes with a cell phone. You know what I mean? Like, he would have to call from a landline phone. Hmm. Yeah. So that's... where is he watching her? I mean, from... he might have had like What's a satellite phone. phone. I... You know, at the time. Was that a thing? Yeah. Was that a thing in the 80s? Yeah, satellite phones were, were definitely, I mean, they were, you were like car phones, which were also off a of satellite. That's true. I mean, I they guess. were very expensive. Yeah. But I mean, this could have been a wealthy person, you know, after sure. her. Who knows? Or, so, you know, the other thing. Yeah. Or the other thing. Could have been just her. Yeah. Um, either way, at this point, she gets the police involved. Right. Um, on October 12th, she is the first time she makes a, fir- a, fir- a formal, <clears throat> excuse me, a formal report about what's going on. Right. Um, so they come out, they check things out, they like look outside their house, inside, and there's no sign of any, you know, they're, they didn't find like a, a pile of, of cigarette butts in the bushes or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, so basically they just tell her, you should probably switch to an unlisted phone number and you start keeping a diary of everything that happened. Right. right. Um, and it didn't really help. It just got worse. Um, a few days later is the event when you that you referenced earlier, where she and her friend Agnes come home after dinner, and they find the bedroom window smashed in, the doors hanging open, all of her pillows are cut up on the bed, and they find a house key. I, she said that like she was given one house key, right when she moved in, right. and they find she, the, she finds this second house key that she didn't know existed sitting on the nightstand beside the bed, which is definitely creepy. That's I mean, super yeah. creepy. She she never knew about that set of spare keys. Yeah. Like that right there would be like, okay, how did this person, you know, get get these right? I wonder if the police spoke to her landlord. That's that's a good question. Because who else would, would have assume, an extra key to the yeah. house? You know what I mean? Now, just out of curiosity, because I was I was curious, so I was actually just doing a search here. Um now the number like those voicemails issue or the they weren't voicemails, they were answering machine you know, messages, messages yeah. right? So, as I was looking, apparently in the 80s, you could, there was a way that you could basically call your own number and yep, essentially leave yourself a, a message. Yeah. So, but my, my question was, did they check, like, the call records to see no. who had, was it just okay, not so a thing that they couldn't do, or? Here, yeah, so here's the thing. In the, in the 80s, in Canada phone companies did not keep specific records like call to call records if they were local only long distance calls were were monitored that seems like really that. strange to me 
Yeah, they didn't start doing that until, like, the age of cell phones. Where, like, do you remember in the 90s, your parents' phone bills? Like, seeing your mom's phone bills? Yeah, you could see everybody that you called. Well... Yes, you're right. You could. It was all the local ones, and then there was a separate place where they had, like, the long-distance right. calls. yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, apparently, in Canada, they weren't they weren't doing that. They would just get the long-distance calls okay. kept on record. Because so, the, lo- the local ones were free with the service. You know what I mean? Like, so they didn't keep track of them. So, this makes a lot more sense to me. The fact that you could call yourself... And oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, there were several ways that you could do it. Uh, just Google it if you're if you're curious. But you could call yourself and leave yourself a message on your own answering machine I from your house phone like number. That. Yeah, I remember little tricks like that even in the '90s, where you would like you would like hang you know the little button. You to hit hang the up flash the button uh, yeah. right as soon as it starts to ring, and then it actually goes right to your phone. Yeah, and then it flips around. Yep. Yeah, it's um. The thing or it was is, like though, right before it rang or something, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that discussed in reference to this case when I was researching, but she didn't even need to do that because the only recorded messages were on her ex-husband's phone on his answering machine. So she could have huh. called that straight so from her house. She was never able to play these back for anybody. She just was like, never. let me delete these bitches and then tell people about it. I mean, they were never on her answering machine. Oh, that's right, because they actually came as were, calls, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, never mind. Yeah, forget what I was yeah. saying. So she, huh. she, it was just her word on what phone calls she true, was getting. True. And whenever friends would spend the night, or when the police would monitor her, you know, they tapped her phone several times to try and get. Yeah. Nothing would happen. Well, I'll be. I think we Weird, just solved right? it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty weird. No, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think about like that. Calls were actually calls. incoming calls that she had received versus yeah, those those other ones. So yeah, yeah. Wow. So then a pretty weird thing happens uh, after this event with Agnes with the break in. Um, she meets this guy Pat McBride, who's a police detective. And pretty very quickly, he ends up moving in with her. Like, he says it's to, you know, keep a better eye on what's going on. And that was the officer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, but according to all of her friends, he was obsessed with her. Hmm. Like, obsessed with her. He even at one point, he even at one point, um proposed to her while wow. he was living there. Yeah. And she turned him down. So what better way to get somebody to be open to you like protecting them than to I mean, you know, that could be a suspect right there. Yeah. Him doing this as a way to like get in and be like, I will protect you. I got you. Yeah. And Man. like what better way to woo someone than to be their savior protector? Oh, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I find him very sketchy. Very, very sketchy. All right. Um, yeah. He, then there's an event where, um, 
Oh, oh, they kept finding her phone cord cut, like the wires outside. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which seems very counter... It doesn't... It seems counterproductive to me to... Uh, for a, a stalker who primarily communicates with her via her phone. Unless it was that officer. Yeah. And he's already there, so it's like, oh, I can't have you calling out to other people, like, you know. Yeah. He even discussed in the inquest, he talked about a time after, like a couple days after they found her phone wires cut, he found a pair of wire clippers on top of his, on tool his toolbox. toolbox right. He, he didn't recognize. He didn't know yeah. Yeah. It's it's very odd. It is. That 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 yeah, that part just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. He also talked about a time when he found her ex-husband Roy parked behind her house. Yep. Um and Yeah, Roy he was apparently basically trying to keep an eye on her. her. Yeah. Yeah. And um but during the inquest, Roy denied that that ever happened. Really? Okay. So that was like another his word versus his word like thing yeah. that happened during the inquest. Roy's Roy during the inquest was like he went off. Like he was like they're just trying to frame me. Like McBride just wanted me out of the picture. Like that was his whole thing. I mean I'd, yeah, I wouldn't rule that out. Me neither. It's it's weird. Yeah, and also we can't look past the possibility that like multiple things were going on here. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it could have been primarily her. You know, creating these situations. Well, because the other thing was every time that she would have some type of like police surveillance. After that, like nothing would happen during that time, but after the fact, things would start again. Yeah. Like that to me makes me really kind of wonder, like that's where, again, I go back on her, just her character, you know? Yeah. Um, To me, it's either with that, it's either she's making it up and doing it when she knows no one's watching or someone who would have police information yeah was behind it which again mcbride is a cop he he works with him he would he would be privy to you know when they're going to be there surveilling when they're going to have the phones tap you know what i mean yeah that's that's true man this is yeah this is what's what's tough about this like again i always i just want to say she was probably abducted by aliens (laughs) <laughs> and it was the aliens leaving these messages but oh, i can't man. quite say that in this case unfortunately i don't think yeah. it's gonna work i i don't i i don't <laughs> think i could make it work in any way can't shoehorn aliens into no it. unfortunately maybe bigfoots but not uh. if they learned how to use the phone if only yeah Call me up a Bigfoot. <laughs> Hello, Bigfoot speaking. All right. So a year later in 83, she moved. Right. In an attempt to um, to escape the stalking is what she says. Yes. Right. Um, and it, everything seems good. 
Like, it stops for a bit. For a short period and of time. so she goes on vacation. That's her immediate response to, I'm no longer being stalked. Hey, I mean, you're dealing with celebrate. the stress of all that. Might as right. well celebrate yeah. it, right? Yeah. So as soon as she gets back from vacation, she finds a note under her under her windshield wiper at work with this because this guy I kind of skipped over that but he had taken to like leaving notes right to leaving these notes made from like magazine clippings right yeah I I think of like these old ransom notes with just like cut out like letters and yeah yeah exactly Um, those are always the coolest uh, let's see yeah it's the, I mean, the old Ransom, that's very much like an 80 thing. Right. So, actually, before she goes on vacation, before she moves, there's a big event that I forgot about, okay. which is um, Agnes finds her collapsed at the bottom of the basement stairs. That was before. Okay. So, that was before she had yeah. left. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah, going to say, because I knew that house. was around that time. Right. Yep. And, like, she's. She has a bunch of like shallow cuts. 14 all over cuts, her. right? Yeah. Yep. Jesus. And she's like bleeding pretty bad. Like Agnes calls, you know, emergency services. They come and take, she spends a couple days in the hospital. Um, but she claims that she never sees the attacker's face, right? That's yeah. what she tells the police. But later, her brother, Doug, tells during the inquest, he talks about a conversation where she says the guy who attacked her Told basically her threatened not. her family. Right. Yeah, and said, if you identify me, I'll go after your family. Yeah. Huh. Which is, it's it's weird. It's weird to think that, like, this early in the story, she knows what the guy looks like. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Or that she has the ability to identify him this early. She just never does. Yeah, that, I mean, it seems a little off for sure. Yeah, because they could have like they could have planned like a whole like sting operation, right? Yeah, putting these people using them as bait because that's what happens in a lot of these types of cases, do. right? Yeah, and put them into these situations, and then boom, they get this guy. Yeah, if she knows who it is or knows their their appearance, like. That's, I mean, that's another thing that, like, the primary suspects in this case are people that she absolutely knew personally. Right. Of course. So, like, if it was her ex-husband, if it was McBride, the guy obsessed with her, she, then you would think that at this moment, in, still back in 1982, she knew it was one of them. If it was Roy, she would have to know it was Roy then. I mean, Roy was the primary suspect, right? Yeah, that's who. Okay. That's pretty much the only person the cops really looked at. Right. Was Roy. Um, which is why during the inquest, he was like, this is a witch hunt. Like, they're just out to get me. Yeah, I mean. Right. Anyone who's ever seen more than five episodes of Dateline knows that if someone dies, their significant other, there's like a 90% chance they did it. I mean, yeah, you know what I, I mean. It's always, yeah, it's always a significant <laughs> yeah. other, right? Yep, always. <laughs> that or the butler, but yeah, that's that's another discussion. <laughs> or Colonel Mustard with a pipe in <laughs> the billiards room. That's right, always the billiards room. Yeah, it's always my favorite. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, that just seems very bizarre to me to think yeah. that she knew who it was way back then. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about like five years, six years before her eventual death, right? And yet she's letting herself go through all of this repeatedly. Yeah. Because some vague threat about her family there, to, to me, that I, she hates anyway. Right. There's no you way. Know what I mean? There's no way. No. Uh-uh. Yeah. Um, co- okay. So eventually she moves out of the house into the small. She and goes on vacation. Three, right. And in, in Vancouver. Yep. Yeah. So yep. yeah. And then she gets this note, this ransom style note that's sitting under her windshield wiper that says, um, welcome back. That's all it says. Right, which is nice and vague and creepy and very horror, but also movie. kind of kind of nice. Like, welcome back, <laughs> right? <laughs> Polite. I've missed you. How are you? Yeah, I hope life is treating you well. Yeah, hope that vacation mm. really served its purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then later in that year, in October of that year, she ends up finding a dead cat on her front porch. Um, That's. Yeah. yeah, that's the one it's that had the message saying you're next, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, she, no one ever saw the cat. This is again, this is just her story. She recounts yeah. this to Agnes and I believe yeah. Tom, her husband, Agnes's husband, Tom. Yeah. Um, so she tells them about this cat. She says the cat's the cat had been strangled. How the hell do you know? Like, did she check the hyoid bone on the cat? Or she did it. Or she did it. I I just hope to God that she made it up and didn't actually strangle the right, cat. I know, that's terrible. It, you know? Yeah. 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 Cat, you're going to get it. <laughs> oh, that's awful. It really is awful. Uh, I say it jokingly, you know, obviously. Of course. We're Love both like mood, super yeah. big animal people. Yeah. Um, But like, the, it's it feels made up. You know what I mean? It especially with the like you're next next to it. Just yeah, like, it almost seems like too. It, it's almost like too horror movie ish, right? Yeah, it's it's on the nose. Yeah, and this is early really eighties. This is like prime fucking oh, this horror is prime movies. slasher. You know I mean? Like yes. all the big slasher movies were big at this yep. point. Yep. I mean, you have you have your first like Friday the Thirteenth that came out what seventy nine or whatever, like yep. right around the eighties. Yep. I mean, and of course they're making fucking 80s. a thousand of them at that point. Oh yeah, and then you have of course all these other big slashers that are coming out at this time. Yeah, there's uh, they, there are definitely of, some horror movie elements here. Yeah, a lot of this is like screaming like, let's just let's just end it. We know we know the the culprit. Come on. But I mean, at the same time, like, there's also so much more that, like, just makes you think, like, well, me, man, okay, yeah, it's it's weird, man. There's there's a lot going on here, like, okay. So then after after what? Go ahead. I was gonna say after that, that was the Ozzy Caban. Is that his name? Yeah, that our brother introduced her to. That was like, what did he do? Like security for like celebrities and like royalty and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, um, he's this like high end security contractor. Right. Um, and this was the fucking economic glory days when like, uh, you know, fifth year nurse could afford a fucking high end security contractor. 
Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's one moment like I when mean, she nurses moves still the, make great money to this day. I mean, when, oh yeah, when <laughs> um, when she moves the second time, she get she pays to have her car repainted. I'm like that. God, I miss the days when like the middle class was really the. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you get your car repainted for what a thousand bucks or something like that now. Yeah, but, who the know, fuck so. has a thousand bucks sitting around just to paint your car? I think I'll paint my car today. Yeah, I'm feeling it's a, a royal blue. Amount. I would, I would venture a guess that maybe one out of twenty listeners of this podcast, one in twenty, have. No, more less than that. One in a hundred listeners to this episode have a thousand or more dollars in the bank right now. You're, I mean, you're probably entirely right. I mean, yeah. these days, dude, that's not as common as it used to be. No, that's At what all. I mean. When the middle class was really yeah. the middle class, man. Yeah, that's crazy. When your entire life couldn't be collapsed by missing a week of work. Yeah, yeah. So after this, she meets Ozzy Caban, and yep. He she like, hires him. Yeah, and he ends up finding her with her hand stabbed with a note, yes. right? At that point that we, we've kind yes. of talked about. Yeah. Yep. Still the stocking, and, though. The stocking around the yep. neck. What is the significance of the stocking? Know. We don't know. It's. I mean, if we're talking about a perpetrator, then you would say that's part of his signature. That's yeah, right? exactly. That's that's. Yeah. I mean, that's what I immediately assume. It's it's their signature thing, you know. Yep. But and, I also um, think about like the when you're a kid, those the what is it like the scary tales, blah blah blah. The girl with the ribbon around her neck. Oh yeah, that story. Like for some reason, yeah. my mind goes there, and then eventually wow. her husband unties it and pops her head. You managed to make this story even creepier. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you so much. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> just, I'm just doing so, my job. The um. The knife through her hand pens a note that says, now you must die. Which also doesn't make fucking sense. It It doesn't at all. He has the opportunity to put the knife in her face. He's like playing with her or something. Yeah. It's she, maybe herself is playing with herself. I don't know. It's, it's also weird. And we, we have to talk because this is the first time she's found with like track marks. Oh yeah, she did. She had the needle mark in her her elbow. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And she's she's obviously drugged when he finds her, and yeah, you know, um, that's right. Which also suggests because if you look at the two main suspects, in my eyes, the two main suspects, Roy, her ex husband, McBride, the policeman who is obsessed with her, these are like big, strong. These are like strapping dudes. Yeah. Right. Like and she's diminutive. She's she's a, a small woman. Right. Right. Now generally when a victim is found to have been drugged before the attack, you're talking about someone who's physically disabled or physically incapable of overpowering the victim without the drugs. It is very strange I for mean, someone who can already overpower the victim. To also drug them. Unless they drug her in her sleep. And then they take her out so she's not like kicking and fighting and screaming and all this other stuff, right? Take her to this area where she's actually found. And then gives them time to do what they need to do. Create this scene. 
but you're also talking about guys who know her. Right. True. She knows yeah. who she may she may be comfortable getting in the car with. Yeah. I mean, you know she can I mean? literally trust this person. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's just odd to me because especially this one where Ozzy finds her having been drugged. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like either of the two main suspects could literally literally have just grabbed her and strangled her if they wanted to physically. They would have no trouble doing that. But I feel like at that point there, they don't want to kill her yet. Yeah. You and know, that's fine. so maybe I'm, if I'm they, saying either way, they even feel if they're like just they strangle her, then they're going to, they're going to go too far. It's going to go too far. It's going to end yeah. before they're done playing with her. Yeah. Could be, you could be right. I, it, just, I don't know. You know, drugging I mean, is weird. You know, it is. It's definitely weird for sure. Yeah. It's almost like I could see like another woman doing that. If it was a woman, ha- you know, fucking with her, putting yeah. her through this stuff. What if it's right? actually Agnes this whole time? Ooh, Agnes. I mean, she's Bitch right there. Was pissed most when she did when she married Roy. She wanted Roy. And Dude, then you could be on to something. Uh, cop guy. She was really into him too. And then the girl <laughs> keeps getting everybody she wants. So she can, yeah. yeah. Who knows, I'm, dude? You could be on. You could be onto <laughs> it right there. Honestly, I mean, know. she's there for all, she's there for all the major all events, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so a really weird one happens. Could have been so, Tom and Agnes actually. Could have been and killed cahoots. one up. Yeah, yeah. So December of eighty five, she's found. Cindy's found in a ditch, right? Like seven miles from her house, and this is super weird. Okay, when she's found, she's in the early stages of hypothermia, right? This is a really weird one. Yes. Yeah. She has no pants on. A boot Just on. a t-shirt. <laughs> what? A single yeah. boot. <laughs> yeah, she has one man's work boot on that's way too big for her. She's wearing a dishwashing glove, like a yellow rubber glove. And the black stocking tied around her neck again. Yeah. She has like she looks beat up. She has like a black eye. She has little cuts all over, abrasions on her arms and legs, and again the needle mark from having been right. drugged. Like, yeah. And when she's interviewed, she has no memory of how she got there or what's gone on. No idea. She just doesn't have an answer. So first of all, which she's been drugged, and the boot glove weird, that right? she's wearing. <laughs> to yeah. me, it's the- it's. The- it's almost it almost feels I, like an obvious attempt to make it stranger. Maybe. You know yeah. what I mean? To make it more bizarre. Like throw people off and be like, what is this? Yeah. It's weird. It might be. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. So it's so weird though. Yeah. And then at this point, she ends up moving out of Vancouver, Richmond, which is a smaller town outside Vancouver. Um, and while the Vancouver police spent a lot of money on her, they were doing all this surveillance. They were, you know, they were tapping right. her phone. They were watching, having, you know, undercover units on her block, all that stuff. The Richmond police gave zero fucks. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were briefed by, you know, I'm by sure, detectives yeah, from Vancouver. Sure they were, and they, they immediately the came to the conclusion that she was full of shit. Was, right. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I don't think 
So let's let's for a moment assume that she was in fact behind all of it, right? That that some part of it, some part of her was behind all everything that happened. I don't think she liked the way Richmond, the Richmond police wrote oh. her off. Again, if we look back at the childhood, her constantly having this need, and then also when she was in that psych ward, what they yep. ended up like, you know diagnosing her these different diagnoses um and the fact that she you know like let's 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 play into the fact that she needs to be the center of attention yeah right and again i'm not dismissing anything so don't disregard what i'm trying to say but you know the fact that she you know is like it's that that diagnosis right where she is the center of attention so yeah when she come when it comes to a police force that just like doesn't give two shits and doesn't bat an eye about whatever she's going through and just says yeah i mean all this plays out you know like makes the most sense it being her Mm -hmm. how is she gonna respond to that by kicking it up a notch exactly you know, that's yeah. I mean, that's the only that's the only rational and I use rational very loosely, but that's right. the only rational response. If she, for whatever reason, has to be the center of attention and they're refusing to give her that attention, she's going to figure out a way to get it. She's got to create it on her own. Yep. Or yep. create a reason for them to give her that attention. Yeah. Yep. And probably because of their reaction if not, then despite their reaction, her friends, Tom and Agnes, the couple, they start spending the night at her house mm-hmm. to, you know, they see her as like exhausted and she's constantly tormented and they're just going to spend the night, start spending the night at her house regularly to give her a break so that she can relax, so that she can get some sleep, whatever. And very soon after, we have this event where the house gets caught on fire. Right. She essentially hears a noise and yeah. wakes up to the house on fire. Yes. She wakes Tom up and says, oh, I, I heard a noise. They go downstairs. Someone has set a f- in the downstairs. This is this big, this big thing, you know, of how, how do you come back on this? To me, at least, that makes the most sense. Like, she's trying to get the attention. Yep. What better way to do it than set a fucking fire, dude? Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, this is, and this is also the moment. This is also the moment where they, um, the neighbors talk about her being perfectly fine until the police start to arrive. Yeah. Right. And then she, yeah, she starts freaking out as soon as they pull up. Which, like you mentioned at the top, could definitely be her just coming out of shock. Yeah. You know I mean, what I mean? Or that, it could just be the relief of knowing help has arrived. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. that finally, like, that realization after, I mean, she's dealing with all this in the moment. Like, her, you know, it's just like that adrenaline, right? That, you know, where you can lift a car off of a person, whatever else. I mean, you're you're dealing with all this in the moment when finally shit actually comes together. Yeah. And you have a moment to actually think, oh wow, this is going on. Yeah. That could that could very well and be. And it all pours out. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then um May of the following year in eighty six is when she's finally hospitalized and receives the diagnosis. Right. Um Yeah. Yeah. 
and, and that's uh, we talk we've about, already uh, talked about that yeah um 10 weeks she spends in the hospital that's that's a long time it's a long time yeah it's yeah two and a half months she's in there like some shit and then was she comes out on. and a couple months later she's found hogtied again and yep naked from the waist down with her stocking around her neck yeah and no memory of how it happened exactly yep and I mean the police because this is the first time she's actually hogtied when they find her right this is the, f- the first one okay yeah all oh the yeah, other because all the other were, ones are the later ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, and apparently the police bring in a not expert. I'm not sure what that means. You so, know, maybe I like mean, a local Boy Scout leader. Well, I mean, or, they have to in a case like this because you yeah. have to be able to determine if that knot can be self, yeah, inflicted, self, sure. self created. I don't know the proper yeah, yeah. proper terminology, but or. If it's impossible for you to create that knot yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some there's some pretty incredible, crazy knots, like you know, different yeah. different tying forms and stuff like that that you can do. That some can't be done by a single person, especially on themselves. Like if they're actually like you know, like yeah. tying themselves Behind up on their back, right? And, yeah. I mean, I I definitely get the the need for a knot expert. I just kind of love the idea that someone's job is knot expert. <laughs> You know I, mean, I mean, that that would be a pretty cool job to have. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we need a knot guy. I'm your knot guy. I got you. <laughs> I'm your guy. I'm your guy for knots. Yep. Oh, man. So his his idea was, or his thoughts, was that she could not have done it herself this time. That's what he said. That she couldn't have tied these knots. Also, we should mention this time when she's found, she's outside of her house. Like laying in like laying across the threshold of her driver's side in her car which is it's very strange especially the fact that she's naked from the waist down she's just like laying with her legs hanging out of the door like it's yeah it's a position Hmm. you know what i mean like it's a weird position to find someone right yeah for sure for sure especially i mean she lives in a neighborhood you know what i mean like, it's not like she's out in the middle of nowhere and they have to drive a half mile driveway up to where she is. Like, she's in a suburban neighborhood in a small town. That makes it a bit different. Yeah. A bit, it's yeah. a little more strange. Right. You know? Yeah, for sure. The fact that her, like, her um, panic button was the, you know, I we both grew up in a small town. If someone was like hanging out of their car passed out with no pants on somebody's calling the cops oh yeah you know what i mean it's gonna draw attention i give you 10 without minutes without a doubt exactly like yeah. laying there with your ass out before somebody calls the cops yeah. i mean somebody's gonna see a half naked person and be like oh there's a half naked yeah. person yeah especially unconscious and then right They're- and then and then add all the other shit right exactly yeah yeah it's bizarre so then after this, they they just, as soon as they, um, or despite the fact that the not expert was like, she couldn't have done this herself. This is the point where the Richmond police are like, okay, we're fucking done. We're done. 
So for the next three and a half years, while this shit keeps happening to her, like random stuff keeps happening to her, they do basically nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. They, I mean, their response when they get calls is to show up and like, oh, you're not dead. All right. See you next time. Yep. Same time next Tuesday. Yep. Right. Yeah. Then um, it's easy to dismiss at that point, you know. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's these things happening over and over and over. It's yeah, with no sign of any outside involvement. Mm -hmm. Um, on May twenty fifth, eighty nine. Agnes goes to uh, to pick up Cindy for their bridge game, right? Yeah. For their weekly bridge game. And um, she's not there. She goes missing, right? And in defense of the Richmond police, they actually respond pretty well to her being missing. They oh, yeah. check the house. She's not there. And they get a search party out immediately. They end up finding the car the same day. I mean, I feel like that's like, it's like, one of those where they've tried so many times and they're like, okay, well, something might actually be happening now. Right. If, like, worst case scenario, you know, something, someone did attack her or take her and, you know, but or if she's not, like she's strung out or, could, right, exactly. Yeah. She could, she could die if she doesn't get the proper attention, attention she needs. And in fact, she does die. Um, <laughs> in she's, fact, she does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just nonchalantly. In fact, she does. Yeah. So they find the car. This is what they find in the car. They find, um, they find the car in the grocery store parking lot with, with purchased groceries sitting in the back seat and that are spoiled. Right. The vegetables, the meat that's yeah. in the the groceries is spoiled. They find a gift that had been bought for Agnes's child. It was like a wrapped present, was, right? Yeah. Fully yep. wrapped. It was yeah. all wrapped up. And a receipt from her depositing her paycheck three nights before. Um, which, I mean, that could have just been left in the car. Yeah. Whatever. Like, she didn't necessarily go missing three days before, you know. But um, they also detected traces of blood on the driver's side door. And they found everything that was in her purse scattered on the ground under the car. Right. So, to them, it looked like a kidnapping. Right, like the purse is scattered. There's fucking blood spatter on the door. Something. I mean, that's a pretty good assumption at that point. Yeah. And um, you know, they. It's about two weeks later when they find her. When the guy finds her. Um, That's that's crazy. And when they found her, she was behind her actual house, right? No, it was not her house. Oh, was it her It was house? about a mile and a half away behind an abandoned house. Oh, it was abandoned. Okay. Yep. That, all right. It was, that makes more it sense. Was, it was a place that was known as like a party spot for teenagers. and. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. It was that one officer that happens to kind of stumble upon it. And, yep. And there was, she uh, is, still hogtied and, and everything yep. again. Yeah. He, there was a road crew working um, right there, and he went to like take a piss behind the house. One of the road workers, and that's what who found her. Damn. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's that's the story. It's, yeah. Now again, we know that Roy was their prime their primary suspect, but we know that at the same time he had an airtight alibi throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Do we know exactly what his alibi was, or just the fact that he he had one at that point? It was shifts at the hospital. Okay. He was seen by dozens of people. Like, yeah. All right. Working long shifts. Yeah. I thought. I mean, the thing is, though, with jobs like that, you can come and go. You can be seen, and then you can duck out for two hours. And then and it's, come back. And it's normal. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah. I saw him you know, a few hours ago, or I saw him. Yeah. You know, a few hours ago, then 10 minutes ago, but that's normal and a job like that. Right. Yeah. Cause everyone's constantly moving around the yeah. hospital. Yeah. <sighs> that's true. Which doesn't feel that airtight to me. You know what I mean? It, it, I don't know if maybe they had surveillance that they checked. Maybe. Like, you know, hospitals yeah. are usually pretty good about video surveillance, even in the 80s, I think. Mm. And um, they still had like CCTV at that point. And, right. You know, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm not it's, sure. Yeah, it's it is weird though. Yeah, but like personally, I kind of just I just rule Roy out at this point. You think so? I mean, like, granted, he did some shady shit. He probably was he wasn't a great husband. We can I think Absolutely. we can all agree on that. You know, I mean, yeah. just from the little bit that we know to her or his ex wife. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You know, but at the same time, like, I don't think there was what what was what was his motive in this case? What could have been his motive for any of this? Like, just messing Um, with her so badly. I think um, people who lean toward Roy, they really lean into the abuse angle that. Right. The abuse that that, that he got off on abusing her. Man, I I don't buy that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I you know again, I, and I can't say. I mean, maybe he admitted to the couple times, and it was terrible. Maybe it was far sure. worse than we than we know. Right. But at the same time, like from everything that we know at this point, I just I don't buy it. Like I feel like this was an emotionally traumatized person that suffered yep. from. Maybe multiple personalities, maybe like dissociative like personalities, yeah, whatever else that came to a point where she needed to be like there was something within her that needed to be out there, like yeah, you know, and yeah, that caused a lot of this to happen, and maybe at the final that final point she took it too far. Yeah, you think so? That's honestly where I where I lean. I mean, I you know just with everything else. It makes the most sense. Yeah, I agree. It's it's sort of an Occam's razor thing. List solution is usually right. It's, I mean, it's it's really sad if it that's is. the case. Oh, yeah, without you know? a doubt. And okay, so the reason why I buy that the abuse from Roy was probably a lot worse than he admitted to. I think if you if you assume the stories about about Cindy's father were accurate. If you if you believe that she experienced physical and sexual abuse as a child, it would be textbook for her to find a husband who treated her the same way. Or, oh yeah, I mean true, true. You know, and again, I don't especially condone, a much older man, right? And I don't condone yeah. any type of spousal abuse, like domestic abuse, Absolutely anything not. like that. I think anybody yeah. like that should just rot. Yeah. 
I mean, that's great. Uh, Roy should he should go to prison too. If he, even if he wasn't a part of it, doesn't matter. Yeah, I just like I said, everything about it, the, this whole case, like to me, doesn't point to him. I yeah. think he had a there lot were, to do with it. There were the a end. couple. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think. Okay, so there were a couple weird things about Roy that I wanted to mention, and this might be as close to Fortiana as we get today. So. When, okay, in 1984, Cindy underwent hypnosis. Okay. Well, we didn't know this. Yeah. She she underwent hypnosis session where she recovered supposedly. I mean, we're talking about hypnosis. So she supposedly recovered a memory of Roy murdering two people during a boating trip. So we're talking about hypnotic regression at this point. Yes. Okay, and yep. Where she's we're, recovering memories. Two people. Yeah. That they went out boating with two people, and those two people didn't. They didn't come back. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That actually like turns the whole early. thing around. Yeah. Right? It's it's weird. Okay. It's definitely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it didn't go anywhere legally. The law doesn't give hypnosis. I mean, yeah. Right. It's, you like, know, to them, it uh, doesn't hold up. Right. Right. She didn't have any evidence or anything, but like she she did recover that memory. But like you mentioned, he did have what the police considered to be a solid alibi for not only her death and disappearance, but like all the the phone calls, the fucking the attacks, all that. He he had solid alibis every time they checked with him. Um. So moving on, we can talk about Pat McBride, the police policeman. officer, right? Right. Um, like a lot of people say he became obsessed with Cindy, right? And he moved the fact that he moved into her house. I mean, yeah, he moved into the house. Like he was obviously at the very least super into this woman. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're not just going to do mean, that. Like I, like I said before, what better way to get to, to do things to manipulate the situation than to be in your right there. favor. Right. And be right there. Exactly. Yep. I mean, even his colleagues, other policemen, talked about how fucking weird it was that he was on her case and then he moved into her house. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's strange. That's, that's crazy. Wow. And then there's the moment where he proposed to her and, like, they supposedly they stayed friends after that, but, like, you're going to feel burnt. You know what I mean? If you propose to someone and they turn you down, yeah, of like, course, it's kind of hard to it's hard to go back to the way I things were. Say, that's hard to know? come back from, regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's no direct evidence that their relationship ever became sexual. Okay, but you can assume they were super close. And Agnes, during the inquest, said that she was pretty sure they were sleeping together at some point. I mean, one could like, assume if you put two and two yeah. together, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's the fact that he was a fucking cop. So that like gets around a lot of the lack of evidence. The like it would have allowed him to stop the harassment stuff when yeah. he knew surveillance was going on. Like that would explain why when when everything when everybody is around, all this shit stopped, and then when it's when they were not, it picked yep. back up. Yeah. Because some outside stalker would have no way of knowing when the tapped and when unless they're like they were, across the street watching the whole you know sure it, right all yeah. the time 
They would have to have some um, form of insight into what's going on in her personal life to know that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would... The thing is, as a cop, it wouldn't... It would be much easier for him to cover his track. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. And we talked about in just our last episode how small town police departments are kind of known for covering for each other. Yeah. Right? And you like to think that, you know, something this gnarly would fall outside that, you know, that like someone, I don't know, man. someone would have blown the whistle, you know, maybe not though. But, like, especially if it's, if it becomes like a high profile case and yeah, you know, then yeah. somebody knows and they're like, yeah, like, no, you're, you're good. I got you. You know, it's weird. I think of weird. all the suspects, so weird. of all the suspects, I think that McBride makes the most makes sense. The most. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, if we're going off a suspect, like I said, I'm I'm still kind of I'm stuck on yeah. just her mental well being, everything everything about the whole thing. I think it was a lot of it was self inflicted, right? Yeah. But if we're going off of like we have a suspect, without a doubt, McBride. Yeah, I I think so too. Yeah, there was a there was a weird event also uh, during the fire incident. There was um, a quote strange man that was seen by neighbors lurking around, right? Um, A neighbor actually confronted him. And, okay, so multiple neighbors saw him afterward, but when um, Tom came out of the house, like ran out of the house from the fire, yeah, this, quote, strange man was standing outside, and Tom yelled for him to call the fire department, Right. Because so this is before anybody this. got there at that point. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned this in the debrief so far, but like when the fire happened, all the panic button and the phone lines were cut. So they couldn't call the police themselves. Right. Um, so he runs out he runs outside, he sees the guy, he says, Call the call the fire department, and the guy runs away. Just it doesn't say anything, he just turns and takes off down the street. And like Several neighbors saw him running away from fire. So that huh. is something like web sleuths have kind of attached yeah, to. Yeah, that's kind of weird. The man at the fire, that right. that might be, you know. But that, I mean, that also could have just been a random guy out from. Who, yeah, just kind of know, checking out. And people are like, hey, like, oh, he's like, oh, I better then, get away. And then panicked when the guy yeah. runs out of the burning building screaming at him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um. So that one's that's, super vague. That's possible. But, that's definitely possible. But it is weird, right? Yeah, there's, without a doubt. Oh, there was also a rumor that um, that after she after the divorce, Cindy, um, Cindy became romantically involved with another woman who worked at the hospital. Okay. Um. Which. And. Uh, People theorize that, like, she may have. It could be why it was a woman's voice, and yeah, yeah, and and Cindy didn't tell anyone about it. They think maybe because she was like struggling with her sexuality. You know, it's like the early eighties. I mean, early eighties, high point of the AIDS pandemic and all that other stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and. So some people theorize that this woman could have been the stalker and that, that makes sense for the female voice and 
and all that. But again, you fall back to the fact that there were never any signs of another person, male or female. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Like, never. So that really leaves you with mental health, right? You're yeah. talking about like Munchausen's or dissociative identity disorder, mm-hmm. something where she's inflicting these situations on herself um, for whatever reason. To either, either it's one personality punishing the other in a, in a dissociative right. identity disorder situation. Or it's, you know, the craving attention that comes from the Munchausen syndrome. Like, I mean, she very well could have been, could have been her inner child coming out as well. Yeah, exactly. Due to her childhood, literally due to that, like, you know, suppressing all that for so long. Yeah. It's, yeah. And that, I mean, that can cause you to crack. Yeah. It it definitely can. At some point. And that, that's how dissociative identity disorder works. It was like at a certain point, you just hit a breaking point and it literally breaks your psyche in two. Yeah. If not more pieces, right? It's the, just the fact that no secondary person was ever identified. Right. Like, and that's the biggest thing. There was no actual actual evidence yeah. of a secondary person. Yeah. You know, nothing that actually contributed to that being a possibility. Yeah. And I think that's that's a lot of what sways me in that direction too as far as like mental health and Yeah. So I mean, there she could be completely unaware that any of this was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's that, what's that's so scary. It is. I was going to say it's terrifying. God, it, it is. It literally is that your like your whole like mind perception on the world, everything can be altered. Just by either a chemical imbalance or like something, something within Some your trauma, right? Exactly. Yeah, that can cause you to basically become an entirely different person. Yeah, and that disassociate you can yourself from the entire right. rest of the, you know, everything yeah. you've ever known. Imagine, you know, just the man. I don't know. I don't even know how to say it. Like, just losing entire parts of yourself. You know, like that's terrifying. It really is terrifying. Yeah. And I think, I think I land there too, the same place you are, where I, I really think she probably did this to herself. That's, yeah. man, it's terrible. But it I is. did. It is for sure. And I, I kind of had a feeling that we might land. So I, I prepared a short list of devil's advocate facts. Okay. Like, Reasons to believe it was a second person. All right. Okay. So when she was found, her shoes had been removed and her feet were completely clean. Okay. Like her shoes were not there. They they were, they were never found. And her feet were like pristine, which would point to the fact that she was carried to where she was Maybe. found. Unless the area around is pretty dry and she just kind of wiped off her, the dust and stuff. Like, I mean, it's an overgrown backyard of an abandoned house. So they, her feet could be completely clean. Especially yeah, if mean, it's I all guess. like shrubbery or grass or Walking whatever else. Overgrown grass. Yeah. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, there was an injection site 
likely where the drugs were administered, but no needles were found around the body. Correct. So she would have had to... Do it in one area and then move to the next, right? Yeah. Now, she was found with, like, a lethal cocktail of narcotics in her system, right? So she would have had a very short time period to get where she was going after shooting up. But who knows Unless if she muscled it prepped out, right? Like, if 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 she instead of a vein, if she shot it into the muscle in her, then take a little bit more she time. She would have had to, a lot more time. Right, yeah, sure. yeah. But I I don't know. I mean, that's probably in the autopsy report. Whether the you know where exactly where the needle hole was, yeah, all that. But um. So there's probably an answer to that question one way or the other. I'm not, but I'm not sure of it. I never found uh, an autopsy report, an official one, but um, I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, probably. Uh, A lot of people say that the amount of narcotics in her system would have made it impossible for her to tie herself up. But during the inquest, again, the not expert actually demonstrated how she could have done the exact ties that she was found in in under three minutes, which is what the physician said, how long it would have taken taken for everything to kind of kick in. And yeah, which I was telling my wife that that detail Mm -hmm. and, and she was like, but that's a fucking not expert. Is there any evidence that Cindy was a not expert? But who knows? She hadn't planned. <laughs> you know? Like you know, this might not have been prepped, and she might not have pl- or might have planned this out like months in advance. Yeah. Sure, learned how to do sure. all these things, right? Yeah. I mean, it, we can't she, rule that out. And she had been hogtied a few times, so she had some practice. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like obviously, she would have done each this one before. is probably getting better than the last. Yeah, yeah. It's it, honestly, it's hard to say, man. Like. This is this is very difficult to just say like one or the other one hundred percent. Like I said, I'm still I, I don't think I'm I'm swaying away from my original thoughts. But yeah. you've you've provided a lot of compelling details and everything that you know kind of kind of make you wonder, right? Yeah. The only yeah. one I really wonder about is McBride. Yeah. I mean that I can agree. I, I can agree with. I mean, yeah. Like I said, if I, I'm, feel if like, I was to go anywhere else but her, uh, other than her, like you know, all this like mental health and everything, yeah. it would definitely be McBride. I think. I I think the answer might be a little bit of both. I think she if say she's going through this mental health crisis, right? And McBride comes in and just takes advantage of the situation. Yeah, you know, that's he possible. could be he could be responsible for some of the of what's going on, right? You know, I mean, at that time um, there were there were no laws against like pushing somebody to kill themselves. Yeah, there there weren't even true. laws until to the two thousands where that was actually even a thing, and it was only a couple states yeah. that uh, even even went you know like adapted to that law. Yeah, you know, like assisted absolutely. suicide wasn't a th- wasn't a thing in most states. I don't even, I don't even think it is in all states at this point. No, I don't. I don't think so either. You know, so I mean, yeah, that he could he could be using her vulnerabilities and her, you know, lack yep. of of mental well being and everything against her. Yeah, to try and aid There's her nothing. in this process, right? 
if nothing else, just to have constant access to her. True. True. You know? Yeah. Like if he was as obsessed with her as people said he was, then any of that shit could have been going on. That's true. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's like I said, it's the only, the only other reason I can think otherwise, like to make sense yeah. to me. So there, um, yeah, we're, we're in the same place on this. I'm pretty much. Yeah. Before we wrap up, there was just a couple of things I wanted to say. Like, because I think it's important as we make this jump into including these true crime stories, it's important for like for us that we understand like the true gravity of the situations we're discussing. Oh yeah, we right? found it out. Yeah. Um, like despite our theorizing and like armchair detective work, right, that we're doing here, like we have to recognize that we didn't actually know these people that's true for who they really were right there there's always so much to these people that we'll never learn from reading a book about it or a wikipedia page you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like so it's impossible for us to come to any definitive conclusion really yeah um the goal here i think is to bring light to situations like this in hopes that like that knowing about it will prevent things like this from happening again. Right. Yeah. I I think that, I think that should be the goal of any, anyone covering true crime for the public. Almost educational in a sense. Yes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's why people, you know, people talk about how like women in our age group, millennial women are like the main audience for true crime they're like it's kind of stereotypical right for the like 35 year old woman to be obsessed with true crime right um but i think it's made people safer i think a lot of people true crime and they think of it as like taking advantage or um or capitalizing on these tragedies yeah right but i think it actually is a public service for people to learn about these situations that other people have gone through. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're definitely right. I mean, it's you're almost providing these scenarios and you know, it's almost like ways that you can kind of think around these scenarios to yeah. actually be able to I don't want to say just like survive, you know, this whatever. Avoid them. Exactly, right? avoid them altogether. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, yeah, I'm right there with you. Know, you. Above all, like we, Cindy James was like a living, breathing person, right? That yeah. like went through a tragedy, fucking like deep, deep tragedy. Like neither of us, hopefully, will ever know yeah, or understand. Hopefully not. You know, and I, I just think it's like important that we have like a a higher level of reverence for the people when we cover stories like this. Yeah. I yeah. agree. And I hope we did. I, I think I think we did. Yeah. I mean, of course, we're, you know, like, just the nature of the show. We're always going to have little jokes, little things to make of light of situations. Um, yeah. You know, because that's, that's how we know how to kind of almost not necessarily cope, but just make it as, you know, try to kind of bring down some of the seriousness of everything. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it is very serious. It's it's one of those things that uh, you're now starting to dabble into, starting to get into. I mean, you we're going to be hitting a lot more of these types of cases, and so yeah, yeah, yeah I think if we continue to approach it the same same way, but also just making sure you know you were acknowledging this is a real person, this is a real thing that happened. Yes, you know. Yeah, I think I think we'll be in good shape. Absolutely. And I I felt really connected to this episode. I really enjoy it. Like, yeah, I know it's odd to say, like, enjoyed it, but, like, I think this was a great episode. Uh, yeah. I, like I said, story. the story is, it's completely wild. And it's one of those, I think, like, as we're getting into these types of episodes now, there's a great segue into that, for sure. Yeah. And I'm, like, I'm sitting here realizing that we almost did two hours. We're over two hours, bud. Yeah. And that's, it's like... Yeah, that's that's one of the longest just, episodes we've done. <laughs> honestly, like, when we first talked about doing true crime, it was a worry that, like, how are we? How will it really fit into the way we run the show? Yeah. You know, like, how, how can it... But, like, obviously, it works. Yeah. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> right? Yep. Like, I think, I think this episode proved it hands down. I think so. I think you're right, for sure. We may just have to get used to editing longer episodes. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. I, for one, do not look forward to that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that concludes episode 97, The Death of Cindy James. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.